Okay, I am recording. I'm shaking a little cup of matcha thing that I bought that is really good for travel, where instead of bringing the whole thing where you know you do the whisk and the bowl and the all everything, it's just a little plastic cup that's like a good serving size, and it has on the bottom uh there's like slopes so um when you spin it when you shake it it naturally breaks it up but in like a non-aggressive way so you get a nice like you know creamy matcha and i've been using this since i've been in quarantine i don't have um a proper matcha set up here but i drink a lot of matcha here for some reason yeah and then i have a white tea next to me also but um, I'm, I'm going to pace myself, you know? Well, I am drinking organic Assam breakfast back in the body tea. It's a state direct organic Assam tea, Republic of Tea. We got to get some non-branded tea. stuff. We got to get you some stuff straight from the farms, straight from the fields, <laughs> full leaf, single yep. origin, all of that. None of the junk, none of the packaging, none of the, none of, just like... I, I, I like when, um, you know, when, when I'm drinking tea, I want to know who, um, who, who, who made this. For me, it's about, it's about the, the humanity behind it. It's the metaphor for it. It's all the relationships. And, uh, you know, so this is like from, I'm drinking, this is an Uji Matcha. And it's from a guy who's 17th generation, Suen family. Um, and I got to go to his his shop, and he made it for me. And then I bought a few of them, and uh, that was a year ago. I should have been there now. I was talking to him yesterday, actually. But um, if not for quarantine, I would have been in Japan right now for Shinsha season. Uh, but it's oh okay. I'm, I'm in good shape still, you know. Yeah, I've had a few well, different tea people on mm -hmm. the last few days. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you've been listening. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Oh yeah, no man. And I got to tell you something. That that story uh, about the young man that that passed away tragically very nearby where you're at right now. I mean, right I there. was absolutely like, shocked. Literally, like I, you wouldn't believe how close died. I physically am to where he died. I mean, like I'm feet away right now. Yeah, and the, and the delivery of the, how you told the story, I mean, it really, it grabbed me. It really did. I mean, I was really, we were listening to the whole thing, and oh, man, I got pretty you. teared up, actually. It was like, wow, you told the story so realistically, like, it felt like I was there. We were there. We were like, oh, my God. So, yeah, oh, and then we listened really... to the Blue Rose um, Thank you. episode just today. So, enjoying it very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for the support, for the attention. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that um, I'm experimenting with. I really, uh, it's funny because, you know, I'm like the first person to be like, fuck podcasts. Like, it's a waste of time, you know, infotainment, like Vice and, and all these stupid, you know, TED Talks and all this shit. Like, it's a waste of time. There's no, there's no understanding in it. It's just, it's just noise. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not that I hate the medium. It's that I hate how the medium is used. It's There are no stupid questions. There are stupid people who ask questions. And I, uh, yeah, I'm very, like, unabashedly going into this medium, trying to just do it right, trying to really distill, like, 
what should we be doing with this? It's very easy to just hit record and shoot the shit with your friends and like let people listen and pass their days. But I don't, I don't want to do that. So that, that's why, yeah, I mean, it occurred to me the other night, um, I was going through this thing and I was like, you know what, wait a second. This is like, rather than working into an anecdote somewhere, rather than, you know, tell my friends about it or something like that. Like just, this is actually, you know, this is an episode. This is a, this is what this is for, for me to share everything that I'm feeling because there's so much, you know, I mean, so much life in it. Obviously someone lost their life, but um, like, it's all about the, the ideas. And, and I think the, the whole framework is telling stories and distilling the how should one live from those stories. That's, that's the point of this. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the most, if you, yeah, you listened yesterday with me and Scott, like one of the most formative, not, not even important, but like straight up formative experiences of my life was that trip when, when we all met, um, I, it was a story in itself, but your storytelling to me was it, it, it unloaded things into me and it, uh, you know, I still remember when we, when we, we, we parked at the side of the road and we were looking at the mountain and you were explaining to me the story. And I want to, I want to go into all of this, but, um, you know, each, each one, and I want to tell all these stories, but, you know, framework is so important to me with this. Like, why are we doing this? Why, you know, why, why are people listening? What, what is the point? What are they, what are they meant to receive from this? And to me, the value of storytelling is, is the application. And that time in my life, as you heard me talk with Scott, like, and funny, I didn't realize how formative it was for Scott, but like, that was like foundational. That was bedrock for me. All these, all these principles that I learned and having you walk me through these places that became so, so, so important to me wasn't just tremendously valuable at the moment, but turned into a million different decisions, you know, factored into factor into decisions I make today. And I think that a lot of other people care about the things that you have firsthand knowledge on. And I thought that it would be really wonderful to try and, and create that moment that I got to have with, with you two. Um, for there's other people that relate to these stories and uh yeah so i mean we met in the funniest way like we met accidentally uh <laughs> i'm a huge twin peaks fan and i was visiting snoqualmie and north bend and um and i i didn't have a car and i called an uber <laughs> and and laura came and laura had a passenger with her and and it's her husband bob and and we get to talking and it's just, you know, whoa, what are you doing here? Or I think it was, you know, where, where, I'm, where I'm going to some destiny. Oh, why are you going there? Oh, I'm here just touring Twin Peaks locations. And they're like, oh, well. And anyway, 
I come to find out, and we ended up spending like two days together basically, but uh, they've been there for all of this from the original shooting and have tons of firsthand knowledge, incredible firsthand knowledge, know so many secrets, (laughs) uh, not just about the show, but about aspects of the, the local legend, the town, the people, all the history that went into it. And, you know, I think like, honestly, like I can shut the fuck up now. And I, I kind of want to just like go through, I don't know, we could just riff on these stories, but you have such amazing stories. And, and I know we could talk about other, you know, other categories, but like, I, I would love to start with like trying to, yeah, like all these Twin Peaks stories are, are amazing. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, you've come to the right place. Yeah, absolutely. I am a, I'm a diehard David Lynch fan. Uh, we love Twin Peaks. My wife and I absolutely love Twin Peaks. I saw Eraserhead uh, when I was about 13 years old, and this was before the TV show even existed. And I got a job at the North Bend Movie Theater. I, my first job was uh, a projectionist for the North Bend Movie Theater. And around the time that I got the job, I saw Eraserhead for the first time, and it blew me away. And I, I will never forget the first day of filming of Twin Peaks, the pilot episode. I happened to be wearing an Eraserhead t-shirt and I was sitting in my parents' real estate office on the corner, right across from Tweed's Cafe, the Double R Diner. And I saw a movie crew over there and I was like, who are those people? I was already a David Lynch fan. I love David Lynch. I was wearing an Eraserhead t-shirt. Tweed's is the Double R in the show. Tweed's Diner is called, in, in Twin Peaks, it's called the Double R. And it exists and it's exactly what you think it is. That is correct. Yeah. And at the time it was called the Marty Cafe, Marty Cafe. And it was owned by Pat Cokewell. So Pat Cokewell is considered uh, one of the grandmothers of cherry pie, the cherry pie. Like when they tasted her cherry pie, like that was, that was the uh, beginning of that obsession. It was her cherry pie. I know her. She's a great gal. She's in her nineties now. She is fantastic. Oh, In fact, you should interview her. Oh my God, that would be fantastic. We should, I should come back. So here we are. And uh, so th- that's what I, what oh, I thought God. about when we were going about all these ideas of people to have on. I was like, you know what? Let me just do an episode with you. And then I'll come back and we'll do tweeds and we'll do stuff like that. And we'll take video and, you know, we'll do it proper. But I'd rather just, you know, we like, we got one right here easily. Oh, hell yeah. So I'm sitting there with my Eraserhead t-shirt on. And I'm looking across the street and there comes the actor that plays Bobby, right? Bobby Briggs. He's walking across the street. I have no idea who, yeah, I have no idea who this guy is. No idea, right? So he comes up to the window and he looks through and he just makes this face at me and and then he licks licks the glass. (laughs) And I'm like, what? What is this? I had no idea that my favorite director was across the street at that moment, starting the very first day of filming the pilot episode. I, I, and when I found out later, I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. So. Yeah. It's funny, you know, Scott and I were talking about like the way that information came out back in the day, like um, how he found out about fire walk with me existing was just like walking past somewhere, you know, in, in the mall and he saw a poster and he's like, what's that? Wait a second. Another twin peaks thing. Oh my God. Um, It's not like the way that, you know, the, we didn't have the internet back then. So um, yeah. So like, 
just because he's your favorite director. Like, I, you know, Dark Horizons was like the original, but like back then there was no, there was nothing. There's no way to really hear about this. You're not getting like the fall TV schedule, like a year in advance. You don't know. So there's, it's total secret effectively. And, and yeah, I mean, that must have been a crazy moment, like being an Eraserhead fan. I think, you know, a lot of people understand that Eraserhead was this cult phenomenon. It was the, the original midnight movie. Um, and, you know, it, it was a dud originally. And then all of a sudden it just, it just stuck around. And, and, and then a year, two years later, it's like, wait a second, this is real, real audience. So there were heads that really, really loved it. So yeah, oh, that, that must've been so cool for you, you know, a couple of years later, like out of the blue, all of a sudden he's right there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was so strange. And so when I hear the, the term between two worlds, you know, to me, the two worlds to me are my heritage, this town, because our family goes back, you know, at least a century here, about a hundred years. And, you know, I grew up very proud of where I'm from. And I have memories that are pre-Twin Peaks. I have memories of the culture and heritage and history that precedes Twin Peaks. And it's part of who I am. And then I remember after, post-Twin Peaks, I remember that as well. So for me, personally, between two worlds, is stepping between those two worlds, the fictional world of Twin Peaks. And then very interestingly enough, there are so many real life people, real life characters right. in this town that match the characters on the show. And I think I struck, I honestly, Sean, I struggled with this for a while because I thought Dave, I, you know, I thought David Lynch was reading my mind <laughs> or, or something was wrong with me. I did, I swear to God, you're laughing because it's, I mean, no, just I imagine, okay, just imagine. And it, you're, you're like, you're like, how the fuck did like, he make this character that is exactly like my fucking neighbor, like literally like almost exactly just a different name or slightly different name. And it just blew my mind. I thought like, that what's he that was character? reading my mind. Well, like for instance, uh, right across the street, I'm looking out the window right now. And there was a real one armed man that lived across the street. He lost his arm. I'm not kidding you, man. He lost his arm in a piece of machinery and it tore his arm off and he walked to the hospital with a bloody stump for three oh miles. God. That's the real one arm man. You know, so that's one example. In the show, it's man. Al Strobel and, and he's Mike who's in the new, he's in all three seasons, but he's, you know, if you watch just the pilot, he's, he's the guy toward the end of the pilot, the big, big, he gives the big speech. So this sort of, uh, I guess you'd say schizophrenia or, I don't know, identity crisis sort of kept going and building and crescendo. And, you know, we kept watching everything Twin Peaks that was coming out. And I was obsessed with it. It's like, how did he, you know, how did he figure it out? How did he predict? Um, all I can say is clairvoyance. You know what the word clairvoyance means? Uh -huh. Clairvoyance is how I describe the David Lynch effect. Because, you know, uh, he nailed it. I mean, he nailed the neighborhood. I mean, it's real. There are stories here. We wrote, a, we were so obsessed with it that we wrote a book about it. Um, you could say that our book is the other world. You could say it's the, and the other world, what it is, is actual history from the Snoqualmie Valley. And you're like, wow. You read so we're about talking about an hour east of Seattle or what, what, two hours east of Seattle? We're 30 minutes east of Seattle. Oh, not yet. Okay, so under, yeah, so 30 minutes east, just giving people perspective, Pacific Northwest. 
Okay, so tell me, so yeah, so tell me about that local lo- local history and how it incorporated into because you know there's there's the the middle stage and then there's the two worlds and and I loved hearing about uh, where it really comes from. Absolutely. So you hear the term twenty five years later, right? Well, during that twenty five years, I got involved very heavily with the Native American population or the indigenous population. And I learned songs and I learned language. I became a language teacher. I participated in ceremonies. Some of these ceremonies go back thousands of years. I studied at Muckleshoot Tribal College on the reservation. So when I saw season three, okay, and we were, we were checking out Jack Rabbit's palace and the portals that are opening up, what blew my mind was the fact that at exit 38, Olali State Park, you've been there. Um, yes. You visited there. There are actual stories about portals in the woods. These are places where uh, beings, supernatural beings, can come and go. They can travel to the other world, the other, this other dimension, and then come back to this one. Preceding Twin Peaks. This is not, this is, these are not new stories. These are stories that have been around for a while. These are ancient, ancient stories. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So on David Lynch's birthday, and I didn't even know it was his birthday, we did a Bigfoot walking tour and we started at Jack Rabbit's Palace. And we were talking about the history of Sasquatch, you know, Sasquatches, Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And it was also a birthday of an elder, a Snoqualmie, a Snoqualmie native elder. It was the same day, it's her birthday as well. And during that um, walk, we had some really strange things happen. And it was right near Jack Rabbit's Palace. And, um, you know, I had, I had, I sang a song, I shared a song that was taught to me. It was supposed to be very old and it was a, it was a respect. It was a sign of respect. It was showing, uh, asking permission to, to walk, uh, into someone's, I guess, neighborhood, if you will, asking permission to come in. And during that song, there was a whole crowd there and they heard something in the woods come out. You could hear uh, branches breaking. It was like an invisible a uh, large bodied person. You couldn't see anything. You could just hear the sound of this thing coming out of the woods. And I'm talking literally like within a hundred yards of Jackrabbit's Palace. And all of this culture- Jackrabbit's Palace is, like, is a spot in the woods that is very, very significant in season three of, of Twin Peaks. And it's filmed right, you know, five minutes from your house. Exactly, yeah. So these, all these- uh, all, this, uh, all these stories and this culture, it goes way back. And so I applaud uh, you know, Lynch and Frost. They did their homework, um, you know, and it's, it's really spot on, my friend. I mean, it's like, it was a catalyst for me as well to really preserve my own heritage. So like Twin Peaks, uh, it really lit a fire for me personally to say, hey, I wanna go back and I wanna preserve these stories and this, this folklore and this information for future generations. And so that's one of the gifts that David Lynch and Mark Frost uh, did for us here in this actual physical location, which I think is a beautiful thing. So speaking of the physical location, talk to me about the parallels between the, you know, Mount C and the, and the, the different worlds. You explained to me like where the idea of the red room comes from and stuff like that. Yeah. Again, I just recently learned I actually learned this um, very recently that Mark Frost had based the White Lodge, the Black Lodge, 
and the Red Room on Native American beliefs, but he also mixed it with some uh, spiritualism from like Europe, uh, you know, psychic mediumship and um, spiritualism. And so I recognized it. And it was very interesting because in the Salish religion here, which uh, it's called Siawan, uh, people enter the spirit world through the black, through the, the color black, you could say the black lodge, they enter in the black. And this information that I learned, it came from some of the elders that, you know, hung out at our house, we have uh, people that we're friends with, and some of them are now passed on. Uh, and this was taught orally, just shared with me orally. It, it was something I didn't read in a book. This was shared with us uh, verbally. But people, when they're going through their transformation or their awakening, they enter the spirit world through the black, through the, you could say, the black lodge. And as a middle-aged person, um, that's the time of the red room. That's the time, the color red is healing. So a lot of us are in the red room for a long time, in the middle of our lives. We're, we're healing from whatever trauma we may have experienced as a child, maybe, you know, sexual abuse or we were abused as children somehow, you know, you know, a lot of, someone has a, a cross to bear. A lot of people have things that they're hiding, secrets and think, wounds that they received as children. And that's kind of the black lodge, you know, like you enter through that trauma, that blackness, right? And then you spend the middle of your life healing in the red room, in the red room. That's kind of what the Siawan religion is about. And then when you become an elder. Which Siawan? Siawan, yeah, that's the, the name that I learned from Lummi. Okay, well, here, finish this part, and then I want to go back, and I I, I want you to tell me, because I honestly don't know. I want to talk about, like, Snoqualmie, Salish, and Siawan, but finish the thread you're on right now. Absolutely, yeah. So, in in the last part of your life, you enter the level of the white, and you could say the white lodge. Um, Some some variations of Siawan also refer to the white lodge as the color of red cedar. So, the red cedar color and white are are uh, are equal they're equal they represent the same thing and if you were to put it into a context of religion you could say it's the holy spirit you know it's the holy if you're a christian be the holy spirit or something like that the color white is the goal uh, to ascend at the end of your life you get through the red lodge and you finish and 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 for mount sai there are white uh, mountain goats there are indigenous mountain goats that are on on the mountain and for the people here that was the ultimate ascension to see the color of the fur of those white mountain goats on the mountain. That is the highest, most noble point in a spirit, in a journey of someone's spiritual journey here in, in the Snoqualmie Valley. And so when you say people are, you're talking about, this is, you know, native going back when, tell me, tell me like who these people are, who the, who the, the locals are that we're really talking about. Cause it's not white people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Siawan religion, uh, we're talking about Salish tribes. And so in this river valley, um, they were the Snoqualmie people. And they, the people that lived here for thousands of years were recognized as the gatekeeper or the guardians of a vortex or a portal. Um, they didn't say those words in their language, but it's an opening. Okay. So it, I'm going to abbreviate, uh, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but in a nutshell, um, there was a star being, half star, half human, and he had the power of transformation, and he came through a 
portal in the sky, came to the earth in his mother's arms, and he had the power of transformation. So all of the tribes in, in the Puget Sound and the Salish Sea, they recognize this particular valley, the real Twin Peaks, the place where Twin Peaks was filmed, as an opening, as a portal, where this star being came down. You could almost say like a Jesus figure or Buddha. This, was, this is a person. This is a person that's half star and half human. Came through a portal, came to the earth, and then basically transformed it into what you see today. Transformed all the animals, all the people. And this is the basis of the religion here, the Siawan religion. And there are so many similarities with uh, the way that Twin Peaks and the different lodges are set up. When, and watching it, I was very, it just was so reminiscent of that. So, where What's the situation of the Siawan religion today? Is, is there, are there local tribes? Are they active? How, what's the population like? What's the sort of health of the community today? Yeah, so on, you know, from what I understand, I did go to college on the reservation. My wife, my wife is indigenous. She's uh, Dene First Nations. And so I have a lot of experience um, in the community. And from what I understand, um, there are many religions and probably I'd say 20%, 25% maybe of folks that live in a reservation here in, in Western Washington practice some form of Siawan or longhouse. So the, the remainder, the 75% that remain are either Christian or Catholic or you know, some other religion, but I'd say 20 to 25% uh, practice this original longhouse faith. Yeah. So much of the much of the local population, the indigenous population, has been converted through you know missionary work and stuff like that over centuries, right? Is that yes, absolutely, that is correct. Yeah. Laura, if you don't mind, would you tell us about your background, like your your people, your religion? Oh, uh, sure. Um, um, if 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 you if you want, <laughs> no, no 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 that's fine. I'd love to know. Um, it was uh, basically uh, it's kind of the story of of Jesus Jesus Christ and how he was, you know, conceived and born. It's a very similar story, um, except you know obviously there's there's a, a continuous burning fire that lives like within the people. So um, the, I mean, obviously the most of um, the people that still live up in Fort Liard, uh, where, where I'm from, um, they basically, they, I mean, they're all mostly Catholic now. So. Um, Around when did that, I mean, did that like convert? When did that happen? Um, well, I'd have to be able to say that, see, if my, um, my biological mom, she still lives up there, she's going on to, uh, close to 60, she's, she's not very old, but, um, she actually, when she was about four, I think, she was actually taken from her parents. Oh my God. And she was actually put into a mission school. 
And okay. when for Christianity, she, is that? Yes. So she went to school with like nuns and priests and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, and then she was taught how to speak English. She wasn't allowed to be able to speak, you know, the Dene language. Um, she just kind of, you know, was completely separated from from um, her parents uh, to the point where wow know that she she literally could not when she returned back to Fort Liard she didn't even know the language to be able to even uh, verbally connect with her parents I mean that's how devastating it was uh, so and and couldn't practice their 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 religion their beliefs nothing so yeah definitely hit hard she uh, she was I think she said she was gone from when she was four years old and there are some kids that were actually taken even earlier than that so uh, by the time you know they could walk some some people would you know some of the missions would pick them up and just kind of you know save them from their savagery or whatever it was <laughs> I mean, it was we're talking this is not long ago this is the 1960s basically right right i mean yeah. i was yeah i was i mean i was born in 1975 mm -hmm. so um and she ended up having me when she was she was 15 16 years old so i mean she and then it wasn't until she was where I was think, she living when when that was when she was you know pregnant oh she was uh my, my most of my family and uh, my blood relatives uh they still live in fort liard okay cousins second cousins third cousins there's there's not very many that kind of venture mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. um she would she would literally consider um you know if she came to north bend she would consider it would, it would be kind of like a city yeah and, and i mean north bend is a city but i mean it's crowded it's like lots of traffic um, there's like a strip of there's like one you know relatively crowded street there's like a main street you know and then there's a high school and there's but it's not like a grid like new york you know it's it's just it's a couple yeah, of streets. exactly like, i mean there's a different sizes of cities and stuff like that and my adoptive parents and my family. I mean, we we lived in Los Angeles for four years when I was when I was about twelve years old. So, I mean, there's a difference between like a city like North Bend and a city like L.A. <laughs> yes, yeah. But um, I mean, it's the same thing. It's a complete culture shock for her. She um, at the time when we were reconnected, um, and the first time that I met her, I talked to her on the phone every so often, but. Um, the first time we reconnected was when I was living in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So um, by the time she she actually drove down from Port Liard to Calgary, and Calgary is not that big of a city either, mm -hmm. but she, she was very uncomfortable. So um, it, it just took her a while to be able, and she could only, she could only stay for, I think it was like eight days and then she, it was just driving her crazy. I can um, imagine it's not just a discomfort with the, the city, but it could also be a discomfort with the assimilation into, you know, different kinds of people that have, you know, if, if she was taken at, you yeah. know, at such a young age and, and mistreated like that, 
I wouldn't, you know, I, I would have a predisposition to be afraid of those kinds of people. Yeah, because I know that she's very, very secure with herself when she's she's in Fort Liard. She's, you know, around <clears throat> family and, you know, she's uh, she's actually married to a Belgian man. So, oh, wow. um, so he, uh, so she gets a little bit of uh, a different culture from him. He speaks, he speaks French and has uh, continuously like uh, really encouraged her to be able to learn, learn the language and be able to talk to her mom. Um, her dad passed away, I think about, it was about 10 years ago. So, um, but she, she's, she was learning the language so she could talk to her mom and be close to her. And it just really hit home that, you know, when you're taken like that, and you have memories of your, your parents, um, there's a lot of alcohol and drug abuse and that sort of thing. Right. But um, they do have programs. They, they've set up programs. Um, they do have uh, a gift shop where they encourage people to be able to kind of uh, do their, their needlework and the beadwork and, you know, the art that they create. Um, baskets and that sort of thing so they do have that too so there are many people that do travel up there so they do have a tourist sort of thing that happens between spring and summer uh there's the um there's uh, some hot springs that are uh, i didn't even know i i've <laughs> never been there but uh when we were camping at the campground there there's a there's a, a couple people that came in and uh, one was German and his girlfriend was Polish and barely spoke English. And, you know, I was just hanging out with them and it got pretty late. But, you know, in the summertime, when you're that far north, the sun never kind of sets. So it kind of looks like it's it's dawn all the time. So, like, oh, wow. I didn't we didn't realize, by the time we, we realized it, I kind of looked at my watch and I was like, oh, okay, it's three o'clock in the morning. Maybe we oh, wow. should get some sleep. Uh, I didn't realize because, you got that in America. I thought you had to go further. That's cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was it was just incredible. It was a absolutely, it's a completely different culture. So, and it was so much fun to just kind of visit with her. I, I mean, there is, yeah. there's a lot of pain. Uh, there is a lot of pain for sure i mean she she when we reconnected and all that she she kind of shared some of that and wow. just her and i uh, we're also from you know very different worlds um right she she's lived in Fort yard all her life um she's she's never really traveled and that's like that's a reservation. Uh, Fort Liard actually is not a re reservation. It's just uh, their it's their tribal land. Okay. So most of the Dene take up all of uh, the Northwest Territories, Canada. Mm -hmm. So it's all across the top of Canada, Got and it. then we kind of uh, we kind of dip down a little bit in into like um south uh sorry the northern part of alberta and then the next kind of um 
I guess the tribal lands would kind of move into Cree, the Cree tribal lands there. So, and are um, they are they separate? Are they autonomous? Are there relationships between the different tribal lands? Are there relationships between you know the like North Bend towns like that and the tribal lands? How does it how does it work? Is everyone do people get along? Um. Well, the Canada, the uh, the Canadian government recognizes Native people to be able to kind of be able to freely go back and forth between the two continents or the the two countries, excuse me. And they basically like uh, the states have the same sort of laws that you're able to, but they are not really recognized. I mean, I have to, I have to. According to the U.S. government, I have to be able to have a, hold a green card while I'm here. Um, the only way that I can actually be able to not have a green card in order to be able to work uh, is I would have to be able to connect lineage and actually have proof. And it, it can't just be blood. It has to, like, it has to be documented. So if you can just imagine, you know, that that's sometimes nearly impossible for you know the native people to be able to have documented proof of, you know it's just a different system we, yeah i mean we're we were very verbal we didn't write everything down and store it you know in a in our you know library wow. so i mean it was very verbal everybody knew that who was who and yes we did do a lot of traveling yeah so I mean, I, I love yeah. I love educating myself about this because I am ignorant. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm Jewish, but you know, I was raised effectively as just like a white person in New York City, and you know, Native Americans. What we learn in in our classes, like you know, we get this whitewashed version of it. And I love I don't know if you've listened to the Fiona Apple album, but you know, Fiona Apple, as, as, as shitty as it is that, like, I'm naming a white person to call attention to this Native problem, this Indigenous problem, um, you know, that's how a lot of us, a, a, a lot of people end up learning. And, yeah, so, so, so when, you know, yeah, Bob, absolutely. when you were mentioning this, uh, I, I'm honestly, like, like, I, w I always want to learn more whether it correlates to Twin Peaks or not, you know, uh, it's so crazy. It's just, it's so crazy that we live in this dynamic that we don't actually appreciate. You know, we don't recognize that, that we have this dynamic, this duality. There's a gigantic duality here in our land. And we just, we kind of, you can live your entire life and not even know that that duality exists. It's terrible. Absolutely. It's so true, you know? And as far as like paranormal goes, like, you know, you have ghosts, you have supernatural beings and weird phenomenon. Within the, the native community, it's totally normal. It's like every day. Oh yeah, I saw that, okay. Right. And in the non-native community, it's weird. Oh my God, shocking. And so there's, there is that duality. It's like when, when we've hung out with certain elders here in this house, in this very house here, we've had things happen that would blow your mind. And 
mean, I don't know, I don't know what your standing is on, you know, if you believe in God or not, or if you believe in a creator, but some of the things, my friend, that happened in this house would make you question, if you were an atheist, let's say, it would make you question, you'd say, I think there really is a creator, because some of the things are so mind-blowing and miraculous, and everyone saw them, you know, there's, we're talking about multiple witnesses that, that saw a full-on apparition right in front of them, we're talking about like five or six people, you know, and that in the native community is absolutely normal in every day, but in, in non-native culture, you know, it's, 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 there's a mystery there, you know, so there is, there's yeah. a wall, so when I think of between two worlds, you know, that's very vibrant for me. Between two sure. worlds. Yeah, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I mean, I personally, you know, you, you, you bring it up. Um, personally, like I'm, I'm, I separate my, this is a whole nother, this could be in multiple episodes. I talk about this regularly. Uh, but, you know, Judaism by blood and Judaism by religion, I, I consider two completely separate things that have don't necessarily have to have anything to do with each other. Um, so I, I'm a Jew by race. Um, I'm technically a Jew by religion, but I don't really think of, I, I'm not ideological about anything. So I don't subscribe to a set of beliefs. I, I don't really think about that. I don't, I don't look around and see what is the political party I want to be a part of? What is the, you know, group that I don't think about things that way. As far as the, the second part, I think of what you're asking, the ineffable, you know, we're talking about at that point and just, you know, do I, I, I don't necessarily call it God. I don't know what to call it. You know, the God is just a, an arbitrary word that we're going to throw on this concept that is really just the ineff the ineffable magic. Um, and yeah, I entirely believe that we don't know everything, that there is stuff, there's more out there. And there, uh, what is the, Arthur C. Clarke, I think? It's magic until it's science, basically, is, is, is the quote. I think he's You're like, correct. right? That's right. That's I'm, I'm right. paraphrasing, of course, but yeah. Uh, I, so like, that's effectively what I believe. I don't believe that we're the smartest things out there. I don't believe that there is a guy in a white robe with a long beard who said he did a good thing. So I believe in, you know, karma is practical in my opinion. I, everything, uh, the universe has a fixed amount of energy, everything, you know, I believe in cause and effect. And I believe, um, that, Every decision is, uh, it's, I just believe in actions and there's no, you know, intention is just something that we can use to formulate ideas, build framework, but really we're just committing to actions and that's all that matters. That's what creates our universe. Um, those actions, there are all these things that go into how we, how, how we do that, you know, determinism though is what conducts the universe and um I, I talked a little bit about how devs the tv show makes a good one-on-one explanation of determinism and westworld the tv show does a terrible job westworld tries to be smarter than it really is devs mm, devs <laughs> lets itself be not that high lets itself be simple and um i liked that but i believe 
and I think about things that way. You know, I'm every every reason why I think of why I care about what I care about. It goes back into something, you know. And and I don't think I'm the smartest thing. I don't think uh, we are the smartest things. I think that there's something above us that is concealed from us. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, so back in 1986 or 87, my uh, cousin was the pork commissioner of Seattle. And so our family got invited to the grand opening of a Buddhist temple, which is located um, east of here, about two miles. And this is, of course, before Twin Peaks. And so I got the chance to go with my grandparents to this Buddhist temple and meet the head monk. And I got to ask questions. And it was so amazing. I got to share this with you because it's just so mind-blowing. And it, 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 la- it left a lasting impression on me. And basically, I, I, I started talking to the head monk. And I noticed that there were these multicolored little buildings in the backyard, little shacks. And I asked him, what, what are those for? You know, there was a green one, a yellow one, a red one. These are little, little like uh, bungalows or little shacks. And he explained to me that each building... Uh, is a room that takes you to another dimension. So the monks go into this room, either the green room or the red room or whatever, and they would travel to these other worlds. And then he also explained to me, uh, it was so interesting, he said that in China, he received a message from the Snoqualmie Valley. He actually received a message from the the beings that live in the mountains. So all the mountains here, uh, he believed, had a supernatural name in his language and that they had an identity. And they called him. They actually called him, sent a message, and said, come to the Snoqualmie Valley and build a temple. This was in 1986, somewhere around there. And it was mind-blowing. When I found that out, um, it was just amazing. Just amazing. And what, so, around when um, was that? You know, so that was a few years. That was late 80s that you, that you met, yeah? 80, 86, 87, yeah. Oh, you met. Okay, yeah, that's right. What, got it, got it. 86, 87, yeah. And then there's something else I want to talk about. The It's called the harmonic convergence. So like okay. in 86 or 87, there was this giant convention at Snoqualmie Falls. I know you stayed at the Salish Lodge. And there were thousands of people that meditated around the falls. And they called it a harmonic convergence. And that was the same, around the same time as this Buddhist temple. So I want to think that David Lynch, um, you know, with his personal beliefs, he was either aware of that harmonic convergence or he might have even been there at the time. You know, he may, he may have been involved in some of these activities, uh-huh. but they visited, there, they visited the sites ahead of time. I think so. I really do. Well, no, they, um, I mean, they did. Okay. All right. Right. They were there. I'm, I'm saying they were, they were there in the area uh, before they wrote twin peaks. I think so. Yeah. But to the extent of how, how much they knew or how much they visited, I, I don't know that information at all. I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure of that, but yeah, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they visited. Sure. Yeah. So it's very interesting. All these things leading up, you know, to the launch of the show in 1990. All right. Yeah. Know, let's ooh. go back to, okay. So you, so Bobby Briggs and, uh, and all of a sudden across the streets, your favorite director and, and, you know, tell me about that experience. <laughs> Yeah. And so then, you know, um, I was on the set. It was great. I got to, I got to meet, you know, a few people here and there. It was, it was the first year it was before it was really famous because nobody knew what Twin Peaks was. So you could actually go over and hang out on the set. Can you imagine? And there's nobody Mm -hmm. like crowding around, nobody taking photos or bugging any of the actors or actresses. And 
you could hang out and, you know, David Lynch was really friendly. He was, you know, he'd be really nice, especially if you're a young, a young person. Like, yeah, come on over here, young man. You know, <laughs> he wasn't annoyed. He wasn't annoyed, you know, cause it wasn't famous yet. So right. I got to, you know, hang out a little bit and, you know, just check it out. And, um, you know, then in 1992, I still had that job at the North Bend Theater. And so I, I got to see not only the, the original series we filmed, um, but I got to, I was there when Fire Walk with me was being filmed. And then I had the privilege of being uh, one of the projectionists. There was actually three projectionists that night because Amazing. we were using an old fashioned um, system that came from 1941. Which is still there, which, which you showed me, which was so cool. T tell me about that. Absolutely. So my grandfather was, had a best friend who was the very first projectionist at the movie theater when it opened in 1941. So some of the equipment that I used as a teenager was, was the exact same equipment from 1941. And so there were two projectors. And in the old days, when you, uh, when you projected a film, you would look for a cue in the corner of the screen and then you would switch from projector number one to projector number two. And you had to get it down so there was no hiccup or pause. It had to flow continuously. Real so there real, was an yeah. art to it. Absolutely. And so the problem sometimes would happen when, you know, the film would snap or something would jam up. I mean, we had some technical problems. So, you know, Harry Trostel, I want to give him a shout out. He's now passed mm -hmm. away. He was the owner at the time. And he, he really wanted to have three projectionists on hand because he knew this was a huge Hollywood premiere. You know, this was a huge deal. Bowie he was not there. <laughs> yeah, and he, yeah, David Bowie was there. Oh, my God. And he didn't want any, uh, anything to go wrong. So he had three projectionists just in case. He didn't want the machines to break down. And I'll never forget it. It was the most magical evening. I mean, I was a super fan already from the very, very beginning. So it was just like I was in a dream world when I was there. It was incredible to be at the grand premiere, the American premiere of Firewalk with me. It's incredible memory. Yep. It was appreciated a little bit differently than it can, I think. <laughs> the the original premiere they they didn't like it and then uh now it's considered you know really a master film festival yeah not, not friendly but uh i'm sure in north bend it was a little bit different i think it was different for people here because you know uh we're just a small little town I think I showed you that clip before it was, it was showing like images from 1984 when like uh, Good Morning America or something visited North Bend and Snoqualmie. I mean, it gives you an idea of the, the, um, the remoteness of Snoqualmie and North Bend. When they started filming this, it was still very rural and very, even though it's 30 minutes outside of Seattle. So I think for folks here in North Bend, oh, Hollywood's coming to town, you know, and, sure. you know, when you, live, when you live in LA or you live in somewhere else, you know, you're used to nah, seeing stars yeah. all the time and actresses. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like, it's normal, right? But like in, in North Bend, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe it, you know? So I think for them, it was pretty exciting. And um, some of the old time rednecks though, I mean, I, I remember there was a resistance I mean, they were like, like what? Go back to California, goddamn! Oh, really? You know what I mean? They didn't oh, like, wow. like Hollywood coming into their goddamn town. Funny. So there's that too, you know, <laughs> which is kind of humorous. That's funny. So. And then when did okay? So like the Twin Peaks, you know, uh, festival started a few years later. 
what, what, what was that like when people, when the fans started coming and, and everyone started visiting the town and, and, and gathering? Yeah, no, they, you know, they were very respectful. It started out, you know, kind of smallish and then it just started grew over the years. Obviously it just grew to map, you know, really large uh, crowds toward the end here. And now, you know, now we're in a different situation and that brings me up to a subject I wanted to talk about here. And I want to ask you this question. Cool. Yeah. Okay, this is going to blow you away. I want to, I'm ready here to hear what you have to say on this. So when it comes to Twin Peaks, I had a woman actually message me and she was worried because I had mentioned that in my, we have a tour company. We take people around kind of like we did with you and we take them to Twin Peaks sites. Now she was worried and concerned because she thought because I'm using the word Twin Peaks and that we're visiting sites that the franchise had a copyright on that and that they might give me a hard time or give us a hard time. And I said, no, I mean, you can't copyright the prehistory or the history of the landscape. That would be like, we were talking about Native Americans earlier. It'd be like an American copywriting a Native American legend. So, you know, Lynch and this is my opinion, Lynch and Frost could never copyright or own, say, the history of Snoqualmie Valley. They couldn't go into the museum and say, okay, everything in this museum, since it's so similar to Twin Peaks, it belongs to our franchise and we're going to charge money or whatever. So, like, who, you know, who, like, the characters in Twin Peaks belong to the franchise. Anything that is fictional. But what's so interesting and fascinating, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, mm -hmm. is the blurring of the lines. And so, like, fans are so passionate, and they come to this physical place. But in fact, this physical place is so much like the show. And then they're given a hard time, you know, because they're copyright infringement or they're, you know, whatever. Um, and so there's this really weird gray area there. And I just want to, I want to know what you think about that. Well, first of all, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. There are lawyers who can give really firm answers on this, but, but I know roughly the answer. Um, you, you can do whatever you want with Snoqualmie, with North Bend. You could say location, you know, town history, uh, location for many, you know, location for TV series, for movies, whatever. Um, you can't use the, the the words Twin Peaks without their permission uh, outside of probably, you know, parody law. And I, I, I'm sure there's something with like fandom and whatever, but um, you can't advertise a Twin Peaks, you know, tour without like the, the, you could do it, but they can just any materials that say Twin Peaks on it. Showtime owns yeah. it actually not not Lynch and Frost so Showtime can can shut you down uh they they could not care they could let it go they could give you permission um but you could do anything you want with the town just the second that you put Twin Peaks in writing somewhere uh I that that you have to get their permission or they they just might not care it's like I you know I can relate that to I used to work on um on Coachella the music festival and one of the issues was like we had a stage at Coachella and then there were parties outside of Coachella that were allowed to operate. You were no one stopping you from throwing a party next to Coachella, the night of Coachella. You just can't call it the Coachella party because huh? then it sounds official, but you can call it a party, you know, 
in Coachella Valley, which is just literally the place. But we're actually, I think actually they got an exception because the town, uh, you just can't use the word Coachella in your invite. You could call it India, you could call it whatever, but you couldn't use the word Coachella in your materials. So I imagine that, you know, it's just the usage of the, of the words Twin Peaks. Um, if you generalize it though, and you say place where TV shows have shot, and then you bring up Twin Peaks when that happens, when you get to this place, then I think that's fine. You know, if you go to the log, like, and this is where that shot from the credits is, I think you could do that. You can make it a stop on your tour, all of that kind of stuff. You just can't advertise it as the Twin Peaks tour. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There's a lot of fans that are really brokenhearted. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have taken comfort in the show and they journey to this place. Um, like a healing place, like a Shangri-La. And I kind of feel sorry for some of the people that have been shut down. I don't know all the details, shut down in what but sense? I do know that a lot of people, oh, like they had festivals here, you know, that they, they've had it forever. And they wanted to have a fan-based festival here. And then for the first year, they've, they're doing it, at, I guess, at Graceland. I don't know the status of it right now. It's, I think they're it's trying to do it in October is, is what I'm told, but I don't think it's really going to okay. happen. Yeah. So some of the some of the controversy is a lot of these really devout I guess you'd say devout followers and fans yeah. they were really brokenhearted that this year they couldn't have their festival at this physical very special magical location. Why was it? And so why? I do feel sorry. Well, I, what I understand is that um, the franchise moved in and said no, we're gonna we're gonna take over the you know the festivals from now on, and there there are pros and cons to that, and a lot of people are going back oh. and forth about that. One, and it's a very, it's a big controversy. There's one in London, there's stuff like that. Okay, so, so Showtime is going to build an infrastructure around the official Twin Peaks, North Bend, Snoqualmie Festival, I guess. Yeah, but they're no longer That's taking- That's surprising, no yeah. I don't know why they would do that. Place here, it's taking place in Graceland. And so there's a lot of people that were upset. So. That's so weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't dig too hard, but uh, I thought, I thought- I was confused why doing a, why, why they would do a Twin Peaks. Fe- I thought it was just like another Twin Peaks festival in Graceland. Um, I didn't realize they're getting rid of the North Bend Snoqualmie one. Cause that's what, yeah, they should, they shut it down completely. They said, no way, no way. And so that's why I asked you the question because yeah, I mean, we're doing our tour company, but it's, it's local history. We're not talking about trivia. We're talking about like what we did earlier with native history and, you know, the prehistory. And we might happen to say, oh, by the way, this is what a filming site where they did Firewalk with me, blah, blah, blah. But we're not talking about the characters in the show. We're not talking about anything like that. And and so, yeah, I just, I brought that up just because there, it is on a lot of people's minds. And if you interview anybody else, it's probably going to come up in the conversation because there's a lot of people that are very upset about it, that they can't come hmm. here and celebrate like on the actual landscape. And that's, that's a big contention between, well, they you know, can, the franchise, or, or, or I guess. they can come and just do it themselves. They just can't do it as an official, like, oh, yeah, they can do it and yeah. do a festival. Right. Like no one's stopping someone right, going there and, and going with you. And so, I mean, you just have to toe the line. Just like you can't, you can't put in, you know, search engine optimization, twin peaks. Like you can't, you can't do that. That's what sure. will get you in trouble. Um, but you can yeah. be like the people who come there. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to figure out how to be Googleable 
for people wanting to see Twin Peaks locations without just straight up putting Twin Peaks in your materials. Because that's what I would have, you know, found you with. Um, I would have wanted to go, you know, I mean, what we did, like bounce around and see all the, all the sites and get all the local stories really as related to Twin Peaks. Of course, there's all this other value of just, you know, like learning all these things that we've talked about that are ancillary. However, what brings me there is because it was where Twin Peaks was shot. So you need to somehow figure out how to get that sort of like deal flow, that, that communication without just breaking the law. You know, you can't just advertise yourself as a Twin Peaks tour guide because that will piss them off. But you want the person who is looking for a Twin Peaks tour guide to find you. (laughs) So that's what's tricky. Um, You can definitely do, are there like the local tour guides? I don't don't know. I can, you know, I mean, whatever, you know, I know the person to ask. There is a local guy that has a Twin Peaks tour company. Oh, and he's licensed? Uh, David David Israel. Yeah, David Israel. Yeah. And we chose, we just wanted to do our local history because it's something that's underrepresented. But we oh. do realize the fact that people are interested in Twin Peaks. So it's like, oh, yeah, so we could mention it, you know, lightly and, and also focus on those things that are needing to be preserved or endangered, you know. That's how I feel about it. It's like an endangered flower, endangered species. These stories that we carry are endangered and it's like we want to we want to cultivate that and if, if we hook them with a little twin peaks reference that's great. that's so that's, weird that's, that i don't even know who david israel was was he involved yeah, in the david festival israel. yeah i he's been a super fan and involved in everything I, i'm sure that he's been around uh, a lot of the same community out here but he's a great guy i recommend because i met a bunch of people him. there who were who were like Twin Peaks, you know, community fans when I was there, but I, I don't remember that name. I don't remember meeting him. That's funny. I don't know. Huh. All right. So, so going back into a, a little bit, like, tell me when things started kicking off again in, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, leading up to the, the new premiere with all the, you know, when they, when they came back and when they shot season three. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll tell you a couple funny stories. We've been kind of serious for a while. So let's, we'll tell some funny <laughs> stuff here. So <laughs> anyway, so this is, this is awesome. Um, I had a, a, I have a friend um, and their son, Rusty, for some reason, he became obsessed with me as a person. And so he's a little boy at the time and he used to have an imaginary friend named Bob. And so he talked to this imaginary friend. He's such a sweet kid, Rusty. And he would pretend that I was actually there at the house and his mom just couldn't understand it, you know? And so finally she, she arranged a, a play date with me and Rusty. And so she brought Rusty over to the house here and we played all day. My wife was here and we were, you know, we lit a campfire in the backyard and we did some wood carving and we told stories and he was just so excited. And we were walking out into the front yard and I grabbed my lawnmower and I was walking to the driveway and guess who pulls up in a red car? It was David Lynch and Mark Frost. It was during the filming of The Return. And they, they drove by very slowly in front of our house. And they were taking, uh, it looked like they were taking video of a prospective film site. They were just doing a drive-by for maybe in the process, you know, he looks at video and says, oh, is this a place for this character or that character? They're debating. And so here I am with Rusty. 
and I'm holding a lawnmower. I'm wearing suspenders and I wave at David Lynch and Mark Frost. And I just remember that was such a cool moment. You know, it was such a surreal moment. And then shortly after that, my wife, she got a pair of curtains in the front window <laughs> and she just, she thought these curtains were awesome. Right. And so we hung these curtains in our, but we were they really silent? <laughs> well, they weren't exactly silent, but there were these like, drape runners, these remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. No, run silent, run drape. Yeah, I know. Um, so we had no idea because they are actually silent, they are actually silent Laura says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there were these people that were kind of stalking the film sites because it was so popular. It was such a cult phenomenon. People were with their smartphones and they got in a lot of trouble because they were taking photos of like, what was happening and they were leaking it on social media. You've oh, how the that. finale leaked. It's so crazy. But even though the finale leaked, we had no idea what it meant even in, into the end. Oh, yeah. I know it's so crazy. So we had these drapes. We had no idea about the plot of season three because it hadn't, it hadn't even been aired. It hadn't aired yet. So we had these stalkers. Arguably, these we fans. still don't know about the plot. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You're right. You're right. We had these people out in front of our house with cameras because they, they saw the curtains, similar curtains, Oh, at other wow. film sites, and they assumed that we were a film site, but we're not a film site. We just picked the same drapes as David Lynch and Mark Frost, and we just happened to have the exact same drapes in our window. And I laughed because I was like, what the hell are they taking pictures of our fucking house for, man? We're not, like, I, did, I didn't understand, and it was hilarious when I found out later. So those are some funny little slices there. So I've got a bunch of those. Yeah. What else you want to know, man? I, I like the correlations of the ideas, you know, how the, I, I love, I love the, the ways, the parallels, you know, that's, that's why I'm, I'm so intrigued, you know, with the Salish religion and stuff like that. That's what I think is most exciting to me. Cause what's most exciting to me about Twin Peaks in general is, you know, the sort of um, ability to create understanding with like, I, I talk about when I was, um, when I was very young, um, you know, I credit my exposure to the character of Laura Palmer with my ability to understand another a girl who was in my life when I was very, very young, like, you know, 12 years old, something that she was going through that I, I did not understand practically, but I sort of understood like emotionally. And I think that's what is so, so beautiful about the work, about the art, about art in general. And what, <clears throat> what gets me excited is, is is like finding the practical stories of where where that comes from so you know the character and the the paradigm of, of this you know world that she this multifaceted world that she lived in that was so hard to navigate and what was really exciting to me being there was was learning all of the different ways that that is tangible in the physical place um you know the way i I, th I think a lot of it is about the indigenous culture that it comes from and how the story is about a bunch of white people but it's uh it evokes all the feelings from from the natives so yeah all, all of that text is really man. beautiful to me yeah that's all in there for sure. And it's, it's sort of the death of the timber industry. For me, Twin Peaks, the phenomenon is, is the death of the timber industry and the transition that we went through. Because starting in about 1989, that was the apex of the spotted owl controversy. That was the What's you know, that? I don't lobbyist. Know. Basically, the spotted owl was, uh, it's an endangered species. And the, 
lobbyists used it to, you know, basically shut down operations in the Northwest. So they, they were able to shut down logging and mills. And so a lot of, there was a lot of fighting between the timber industry and environmentalists. And that came to its apex in This is like tree hugging what they used to say, right? Right. And so I grew up, dude, I grew up with like big redneck logger dudes all over the place. Like it was, it's part of my culture. Like I, I can never take it out of me. Like I really, I still to this day, um, I get really excited and I'm proud. And it, it may seem strange to some people because of like global warming. Like why the hell would you want to cut all the trees down? You know, we're making the earth sick and all that. But like, there's a part of me in my heart that I can never take that out. It's like, and I see a guy with a chainsaw, big old logger wearing suspenders. It, it was ingrained in me. It's like, I'm looking at a rock star, like the same way that someone would look at like, you know, Kurt Cobain. When I see a guy walking down the street, a high climber, you know, my son works in the woods and there's that part of me. It's, and it's, it's interesting because Twin Peaks is basically. So it became like fetishized kind of. Yeah, it's kind of fetishized, you know, and my dad would tell me stories, my grandfather, you know, my grandmother, all my uncles and, and, you know, my son is actually a wildland firefighter. Um, and I know the fire, the fireman is very big in, in Twin Peaks. And we've had a lot of interesting conversations about fire in the forest. You know, a lot of our, my friends go on tangents about forest fires and fighting fires and who the fireman was. And, you know, so fire walk with me. I just want to share this with you. Yeah. During a, a forest, when you're fighting a forest fire, so my, my son right now is trained to be a wildland forest fire. So okay. what you do in the Northwest here in the Cascades is you allow the dead branches and debris to burn up the fuel in a safe way. And so you create uh, channels, you create a barrier. So oftentimes they will dig an easement. So if you think about a, a long strip of earth where they remove the, the branches and debris, and they allow the fire to burn along that stretch to burn up all the fuel. And so whenever I hear fire walk with me, I, I think immediately of a fireman or a fire person, firefighter, who's allowing the fire to consume parts of the forest on purpose, but in a controlled way to get the fuel burned up so it doesn't turn into a giant explosion. And so in life, you could take that into someone's life, you know. They have a fire inside of them, you know. Maybe we allow some of that fire to burn that up inside of us, you know, and, and do it in a controlled way. So there's been a lot of conversations about those parallels. What do you think like of that? that. I like that. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, when you're just the phrase fire walk with me, it's, it's so evocative of, of exactly that, that, you know, it's, it's the duality. It's the spectrum. I talk about this all the time. You know, uh, we have to, <clears throat> we have to go into the darkness to understand the light. And, you know, you, there's a slingshot effect. There, there's flexibility. You gain language, vocabulary. You know, you can't, you can't expect to understand one without the other and so yeah like being hot understands you know that, that the, the hotter you can sustain the more temperature you can sustain the more balance you're capable of and i think that's the goal is balance absolutely and you remember when we drove through the tunnel of sycamores and you were so excited you, you put uh -huh. the camera outside the sunroof and you played the uh you played the, the Under song. The sycamore trees. Oh, yeah. So when I first heard that song, like that that grove of sycamores is very personal. 
to I've us here. I've got ideas, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a good song. Yeah. And that's a very special place. And that whole that whole area, that road, Reinig Road and the Grove of Sycamores. And the bridge is right there. You could talk for six hours about, oh, it's amazing. The spiritual, the secrets on that road. Um, there are things that have happened on that road near those sycamores that are so similar to Twin Peaks. You'd think that like it was part of the movie and, and like what? just the magic and the strangeness. Well, I, you know, if I tell this story, I just want to warn you. It's Go dark. Really I don't care. Dark. Go dark. And I don't know. If you, are you okay with that? Are you, what okay do you mean? You okay. heard my episode right. two. Episode two is about a kid getting crushed in, a, in an elevator. What, Very good what, point. Okay. You know? I'll share it. <laughs> okay, not right, not right. to be not. Yeah. So purpose like, yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So you know where the sign is, obviously it says welcome to Twin Peaks and there's a physical location. You can visit that location where the sign actually was set up. It no longer stands there, of course. Um, but right across the street from the welcome to Twin Peaks sign, there is a house. And in 1999, this is after Firewalk with me, this is, you know, within the 25 years, there was a horrible, horrible thing that happened in this house. And the reason I get, you know, a little bit uh, tender, I guess, talking about it is because this is the community that I live and, you know, we knew who these people were and I just have to be very careful with my words because, you know, I just want to be very respectful. So in 1999, there was a husband, a father, and without warning, he just lost his mind one night and he stabbed his entire family to death. He stabbed his wife, he stabbed his daughters, and there was one young daughter that survived and out of the whole family, she survived and she escaped. She hid in the closet and she's still alive to this day. And that's why I'm very careful. But she ran to the neighbors, the French family, and she called for help. Her dad was in a catatonic state on the bed. He had blood everywhere. He had just torn his family apart. He was sitting on the bed, just staring you know, at the wall in this catatonic state when they came to arrest him. Now, interestingly enough, you know, a lot of people have heard that story, um, but the part that you may have not heard about is the part I'm gonna tell you next. So two or three doors down is a reservation, the local native people. They have a reservation. It's about 22 acres. And there was a young man who used to live here. He was a, kind of a foster kid. He used to live at my house here. And he told me a story. He said, oh, I remember that night. He said, I got in trouble for stealing money out of my dad's wallet. And it was his stepdad. And his stepdad just beat the shit out of him. Just beat the fuck out of him and put him in a, in a, in a shack. Tied him up and put him in a fucking shack, right? I mean, it's horrible. You think about that, right? On the same evening that this man lost his mind, killed his entire family, and, you know, the youngest daughter escaped and called the police. So he was in the shack, two or three doors down. I don't know. It's about like a half a mile away. And he said that he was crying and weeping. And then he kind of, he, he fell asleep for a second or he nodded off. And then suddenly he woke up and he said, orbs of light whizzed into the little cabin, the little shack that he was locked in. These were little tiny orbs of light, and they were screaming. You could hear the voices of these 
it was like he said there were women's voices. There were girls and women's voices that were screaming in terror coming out of these balls of light. And these balls of light came into the little shack that he was tied up in and locked in. And they circled around him. They whizzed around him. Kind of like some science fiction movie. I mean, just bizarre, right? And then those little balls of light shot through the ceiling and just shot out into the sky. And he could hear the screams going into the sky. And I mean, like, oh my God. When I heard that story, I mean, it just made me think about like, the spirits of these people. I mean, if you believe in a spirit or an afterlife, you think of the consciousness of these girls that were stabbed to death. And the, that is their, like their consciousness that was leaving in such a hurry in an unexpected way. They didn't expect to die that night. Mm -hmm. And those balls of light just, you know, it's like their souls escaping from their body. Would he have heard going the wherever screams? They no, nope. He, 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 was, he was far enough away, he would not have heard the screams, no. This is like a half a mile away yeah. and there's a lot of keys. Wow. You know, it's a spread out road. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Isn't that bizarre? Horrible. It's Horrible. right where the line is, dude. Like that's just one example. I mean, you could give me any film site, dude. I swear to God, you could test me. You could give me your favorite film site. Mount Sinai Hotel. It, and I could probably. Mount Sinai Hotel. All sorry, right. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. No, no. I'll, I'll tell you one about that. So yeah, Mount Sinai Motel. And this is, this is a lot sweeter of a story, actually. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll, go, we'll go in a humorous way. But you know, like in oh, the scene- Oh, oh I, I mean, don't be, don't, I'm not, I love the dark shit, honestly. So don't, don't be afraid to go dark. Okay, yeah. It's, maybe it's the Catholic guilt coming out. I, I like, I'm like, oh no, I shouldn't. Oh my God, my mom's listening. Shit. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, so Mount Sinai Motel, the, um, my dog, we have, a black, we have a black dog. So you remember in Fire Rock with me, it, during that one scene when the little boy um, is crossing the street with the mask on, and you hear black yeah. dog runs at night, black dog runs at night. So I made a joke because we live right next to the Mount Sinai Motel. We live like really, really close to it. And we have a black dog, and our black dog gets out all the time and goes over to the Mount Sinai Motel. And I just think it's kind of sweet. And so people from Denmark came over. We had a, a TV crew from uh, an entertainment company. And so I entered, I introduced our dog. We're the real Bob and Laura, of course. And I introduced our dog as the real black dog. Oh yeah, right. Thing. Wait, I forgot about the Bob and Laura connection. Yeah, so, so whatever. I, like Bob is the, is the spirit, is the killer Bob. Like this isn't really a spoiler. Like, cause you don't really understand like what exactly the ins and outs of Laura's death are. Uh, but, you know, Laura is is the dead girl and Bob is the killer. And here we have Laura and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and our sweet little black dog who runs at night at the Mount Sinai Motel. So, yeah, just everybody laughed. They thought that was so cute. And they love they love our black dog runs at night. So it's really awesome. But speaking of Bob, I met I met Frank Silva and I, it was just one of the it was so That's awesome. Cool. I said, hey, Bob, I'm Bob. Yeah. And he says, hi, Bob. I'm Bob. And we shook hands. And it was so fucking awesome. I love that moment. <laughs> Tell me about you sent me this text and I didn't know what it meant. The real Cooper. Oh, the real Cooper. Yeah. So I have a friend, Mindy McKinney, and her and her dad, Officer McKin McKinney, is I would con consider him the real Cooper. 
and uh, he he was stationed there at you know Old Lolly State Park, um, and he would go and do investigations, and he would you know he was law enforcement, you know he was law enforcement, but uh, I always think of him as the real Cooper, and a lot of his stories I talk to him sometimes. I called him up on the phone and hit him up for stories, and he's got some really fun crazy stories that remind me of Twin Peaks and from oh, yeah. the same place. And he's right out of that ranger station right there where they actually filmed. They use that ranger station at a lolly at exit 38. So I consider him uh, the real Cooper, you know, just, just cause of his adventures. And he's just a fantastic gentleman. He's just a great, great uh, person to talk to. All these people I'd love to hook, hook you up with, man. I, you could make a f amazing documentary. I mean, I could literally just, yeah, and I got to come back. I want to come back just to come back, but uh, it would be really cool to come back and do like a, you know, a nice long form episode talking to everyone. That'd be really fun. We should, we should plan it once, uh, once the world opens up again, you know, once, once we're safe from this existential threat. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. I mean, I don't know. Any other, uh, any other anecdotes that, that you want to talk about? Um, how about we, 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 we got a lot, so. <laughs> yeah, you get, you could ask me, maybe you could mention one more film site or you could, uh, just think of one more question and we'll, me and Laura will answer it together and that, that could be the, the end of it. How's that sound? Well, let's go back to, you know, Mount Sai and, uh, the the native the indigenous stories because that's really what what gets me most excited i'd say yeah okay i will tell you um what's his name what does he call himself what oh you mean the guy that lives up the road up there yeah oh yeah we'll the native guy that, oh yeah that'll totally <laughs> the go guy who totally was crushing on me oh yeah okay <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one <laughs> okay so i'll i'll do a little cluster here so uh, <laughs> this is kind of funny and I want to give a shout out to our local museum. Uh, so there, there's a woman named Christy Lake, who is a very wonderful person who runs the Snoqualmie Valley Museum and she does it all by herself. She's the only paid employee and she's keeping it going right now. And it's amazing. But her father used to work at Warehouser. And he remembers in the 1970s, there was a guest speaker from the University of Washington that came out to talk to some warehouser employees, okay? This is fantastic. This is gonna blow your mind. <laughs> and so according to her father and a couple of his friends, this speaker, this professor from the University of Washington was giving a history of geology. He was talking about the history of the mountains and Mount Sai, and he was talking about Snoqualmie Falls. He was talking about you know, the history of geology and the landscape. And basically at some point during the lecture, he mentioned an underground tunnel underneath Mount Sai. And he said that he and a colleague had discovered the entrance to this tunnel and it went for several miles under the ground in the direction of Everett. And that they decided to go into this tunnel and they took flashlights with them and they, they walked as far as they could. And they, he claimed during the lecture that at the middle of the tunnel, there was a fire ring that they carbon dated to you know 9,000 years ago. Humans were in the center of the mountain, underneath the mountain, 9,000 years ago, and they proved it. They had a fire ring that they carbon dated 9,000 years old. Wow. <laughs> 
so these guys that were at warehouse are like, Oh my God, you know, everybody knows the mountain outside. Holy crap. Yeah. You know, and they, they never forgot it. And a lot of these guys, you know, hunt and fish and God damn, I want to see where that tunnel is. Fuck, let's go look for that some bitch. You know, so everybody got in their trucks after the lecture and they're all going up in the hills looking for this tunnel and nobody could find the fucking tunnel, man. They're looking everywhere. And so it's like hilarious. So they, it just, it got worse and worse. Everybody's like, we want to know who that speaker was. We need answers right now. So finally they got a hold of the University of Washington. They said, can you please answer this question? Who was the professor? Who was the speaker? They came out and told us about this tunnel and they had no record of, of a professor or a speaker. They had no record. According to the University of Washington, they had no idea what, what these guys were talking about. So what a weird story. It's like so, a Mandela yep. effect or something where like everyone, like a shared memory that was a delusion, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's so funny. But there is a fault line that um, in other places of the world, like Yosemite, there are fault lines that if, you know, if they shift a certain way, they create kind of a tunnel. So mm. it is very possible because there is a fault line that goes in that direction. And it could have moved or disappeared. Yeah. Absolutely. So if anybody ever wanted to do, go on an adventure and find the, uh, we're game. We want to do that. There's also <laughs> a blue a blue garbage can on the side of the mountain that's been there for 35 years or 40 years. And so people growing up, look up on the mountain through a telescope and they see this blue garbage can hanging on a tree and it has weird letters on it, writing on it. Nobody knows what it is. And it's this mystery of the blue garbage can. That's another legend of the mountain. It's been there and for the other 35 one, years. Wow. Yeah. No, no idea. Search and rescue doesn't know what this blue garbage can is. It looks like a government thing. It's got numbers on it and all this weird shit. Huh. And so the other thing about Mount Sai that a lot of people know about is um, are the lights that people will see on the mountain. And so it's such a phenomenon here uh, that it's just pretty well accepted that there's strange lights that are seen on the mountain. They're orbs, they're, you know, maybe you could call them UFOs, whatever. It's but people transitioning from the red to the white. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> hey now you're... <laughs> so, or the yeah. black, I don't know. The, uh, light, the light could be appearing or disappearing or moving, I don't know. Yeah, so um, we wrote a book and... Really, I, I'm not plugging the book because I no like, plug the I book. Tell am, us all about it, and we could. That, that's a good. Put, that's a good place to end, and then we can get people like to go look at okay. the link. You know, tell me tell me all about the book, and then we'll post the link. Okay, so everything we've talked about, everything we've talked about is in this book that my wife and I wrote. We're very proud of it, and really, just to have written the book is is very satisfying. But it's called the Odd Man Up, the Odd Man Up, and it's basically the the really, really, really secret, secret, secret history of North Bend and Snoqualmie. So it's like the prequel of the prequel. So it's everything we've been talking about is in the book. Some of her family history, what she mentioned about her, her mother, and we go to, you know, it goes to Canada and it talks about her experiences. But it's all about the real Twin Peaks. We never mentioned Twin Peaks in the book, but it's all, everything in the book is 100% true. All we did was uh, change the names of the characters. And the reason we had to change the names is they've done bad things. You know, I, I don't want to get sued. I don't want to like for revealing dirty secrets and stuff sure. like that. You know, there's, there's really bad things that people have it's done. It's not about the identities. It's about the stories. 
Right. But the stories are absolutely true. We just changed the names. Yeah. And um, it's some of the stuff that you've just heard, you know, in this interview and more and more. And it goes way into depth about what's it called? It's called the odd man up. So think of the odd man out. And we just changed the last word to up up and the cover has an owl on it. You can find it on hmm. Amazon. Great. And I'm, I'm very proud to say my friend that we are, fi- we're rated five stars. We really want to release it. As a, we want to release it as a physical copy, but we haven't done that yet. It's just a Kindle for now. And it, some people, you know, they want the physical copy, but so far we have a five-star rating. We're very proud of it. And uh, if you want more information about the, you know, the, the old religion, Siawan, it awesome. goes so into detail. And, 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 you know, if you read it, I'd be very honored if you read it. If you only get send halfway me through, the, yes, yeah, send me the link and I'll put it in the notes for this episode and, um, and we can share it with everyone. That's awesome. Oh, that's, that's wonderful, man. Thank you so much. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. The, the stories. That's really cool. That's great to hear that you guys did that. Check it out. All right. Hey, this is so cool. This is such a, such a treat for me to get to just, just bounce these back and forth. It's so, it's such a special place for me and, and you two are such, you know, gatekeepers of such, such gold. And, uh, I appreciate y'all for it so much. And, uh, I'll never forget that trip. It was such a beautiful trip and we have to do it again. This will be one of my, it's, it's been like on my list for a minute. I've been wanting to come back. So I don't know. And maybe I'll talk to these idiots about the whole festival stuff. I don't understand. So <laughs> I'll, I'll do some homework on it. Yeah. They'd be better at answering those questions than I would, but I just have the general idea. So no, nah, I got, I got, I got a yeah, couple no, people I could talk to. <laughs> I could find out some things. Do, yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Well, Hey, both of you, thank you so much. The, the real Bob and Laura, <laughs> and, you know, I'm happy I have you guys in my life and, and to many, to many more of these conversations. Oh, for sure, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. We really appreciate it so much. And, and as you know, as is obvious, please stay safe and uh, be healthy and, and hopefully we'll all come out through this whole quarantine thing even better. And I'll see you guys soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Peace out, man. All right. Lots of love. Peace. Thank you so much. Oh, God. Thank you. We appreciate it.